0: and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries and constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com, and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at and I can be reached at gil@epen.info. My guest today is Professor Susan Golden-Meadow, who's professor of psychology and comparative human development at the University of Chicago. Her research focuses on the basic, most basic building blocks of language and thought as they're developed in early childhood. Her research also uh, generated more broadly applicable insights into how the spontaneous gestures that learners produce that can reveal their readiness to learn language, math, and scientific concepts. Welcome Susan. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming back. Um, So you have a recent book out um, entitled Thinking With Your Hands, The Surprising Science Behind How Gestures Shape Our Thoughts. Um, It's a fascinating book. Um, Yeah, so like like we were talking before, I, I don't think about gestures that much actually. So my you know, uh, my background is engineering and then economics, mostly quantitative stuff. Um, and so it, it's actually quite interesting for me to to think about this. so so before we get to the details of this, um, what so what is the book about? Um, so get get a little bit foundational. Uh, what are gestures? why do people do it? And it seems like energy consuming thing for for humans to do well it is
1: interesting (laughs) from that point of view i mean um if you're already talking so why are you using your hands it feels like it should be more effortful to do two things at once than to do one thing at once so we've actually done a study where we measure how much cognitive load you expend Um, and when we do that we sort of make people either let them gesture or tell them not to gesture and then we look at how much cognitive effort they expend hmm. and it turns out they expend more effort when they're not gesturing either when we tell them to not gesture or when they choose to not gesture yep. than when they gesture so despite the fact that you're doing two things at once so i share your intuition it feels like <laughs> uh, why would you do something that that costs energy but it doesn't it's synergistic with speech um, and it doesn't cost you any energy.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot sort of neuroscience uh, uh, aspects here, so we will get into your book, but I, I know I was just wondering, so evolutionarily, so if you sort of rewind time back, say 100,000 years and homo sapiens sort of start off, let's say, um, they didn't have a very articulated language, I would say. I mean, they may be making noises and stuff. Um, Maybe I'm just speculating voices
1: uh, the, the, yeah, our...
0: the gestures would have been quite important, right? So I mean there is a you know there's a line over there or there's a water hole over here could have been uh, quite a quite an important uh, thing for them to do. So gestures potentially is sort of the first communication vehicle, I would think, right for homo sapiens. Perhaps we don't Perhaps, know that.
1: Yeah. we don't know. <laughs> I think that's uh, my best guess is that they come together, that that gesture and speech in people actually is integrated and come and maybe even initially came all at once. I think what's interesting about uh, non-human primates is that they don't use gesture and sound Mm -hmm. together much. That's Mm -hmm. really much more of a human thing. Um, and it may be the coming together of these two different modalities that sort of got us on the road to language, I don't know. Um, but I wouldn't, I, I don't know if I'd put my money on gesture first as a language.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. So non-human primates, as you say, don't gesture that much. And well, maybe. So we
1: we don't. I mean, okay, they don't gesture much in the way that we do. But they, but people have argued that they do gesture. Yeah. Um, currently working with somebody who studies non-human primates to try to figure out whether their gestures, how comparable they are or aren't to the kinds of gestures that human children produce.
0: Right. Because so, so they may have sort of a different construct around it. But yeah, I think you're arguing that. Gestures and language sort of potentially started together. Yes. Um, when we talk about things or when we make noises, um, the 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 sort of the complementary channel that goes with it provides a higher level of content and a higher level of information. So uh, it's very difficult to figure out what happened 100,000 years ago, but. Um, sure. But uh, today we know that's the case, right, that there are these are complementary channels of information when combined uh, in a good way that you, you can actually push through a lot more information than otherwise.
1: Yeah, I think you can and you do. Um, sometimes the information integrates very nicely and it, it just looks like gesture is augmenting what you've said. But sometimes gesture can actually convey something quite different, not contradictory, but. Yeah, a a, a totally different side of what you're saying.
0: Yeah, so I want to get to your book. So you you have three different parts here. The first part is called thinking with with our hands. Um, You say in chapter one here, why do we use our hands when we talk? Um, So I want to ask you, do all people use their hands when they talk? Pretty much.
1: I mean, some yeah. people use them more, and some people use it less. Although we don't actually know that, even. I think what we know is there are there are circumstances in which you can get somebody to gesture, um, and you can put them. Um, you know, by, by uh, there was a person in a one of the studies by David McNeil, um, and that person didn't gesture at all. Never gestured. So. <laughs> is he gave him delayed auditory feedback, you know, where yeah. he would hear his speech, but at a delay, and he started to gesture like crazy. <laughs> so maybe, you know, you can always get somebody to gesture. You just need to have the, the right circumstances. Even you, I bet we could get you to gesture.
0: Yeah, so I don't know if this new the your research, Susan. So I was wondering, so in academics, uh, where you are at the University of Chicago, you know, they, um, when you write papers, there's sort of peer review. I mean, they, these are all sort of uh, written down stuff, mm-hmm. mathematics, equations. Right. Um, and you don't have that person there, you know, talking about the paper. Right. So, so do we see um, less sort of gesturing in the academic arena? Uh, I'm not talking about classes. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, you're teaching your your students. But generally, you know, sort of, in the academic research arena, do we see less of it?
1: Well, certainly, in a uh, in a paper, you don't see gesture. Um, but in classes, you see it all the time, particularly in science classes, particularly if you're looking at geoscience or physics or chemistry. Um, people you people I don't think a science teacher can talk about his topic, mm-hmm. a math teacher without using gesture. Um, and so, you know, and when academics go and give talks, they they use their hands as they, unless they're reading their papers. If they're reading their paper, they won't gesture. But if they're just giving a talk, even from a PowerPoint, they're going to gesture. And I think the point you made about it being sort of static and um, it, it, there's no dynamism in a, in a paper or in a slide, typically. Um, and that's what gesture does. It brings in, um, you know, if there's a relationship between two things, gesture can make that apparent. Um, If there's a transformation between one and the other, gesture can do that. You know, a math equation is so static, but when a a mathematician gets up and explains it to the students, Mm -hmm. he's putting in all of the, the transformative relational information that is hidden in the static form so I think that's just what gesture does and that's why it's useful
0: yeah so I mean there is an uh, there is an additional channel available for communication and so some people use it very effectively and maybe some people don't for whatever reason and I can see the village elders from fifty thousand years ago when they told the stories uh, i would I would imagine they were, they were very animated. Right, well, the gestures,
1: yeah. Right, that's one of the places where you really find gesture used very well, and I think you're just right, right that if a um, a good storyteller will make really good use of their hands and their face and their body, that's even true of sign language storytellers. So we had a conference here once where we at, at the University of Chicago we brought in three signers who were really good storytellers and three speakers who were really good storytellers. And the way they used their bodies and talked and gestured was fantastic. It was fantastic. So I think storytellers are among the best um, of gesturers, but we all do it. We're just not quite as poetic.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We all do it at some level, uh, but there is sort of a a production and reception question here. So, you know, Clearly, teachers are always on the production side of this. Uh, they're meeting students, uh, new students every year, and they're trying to figure out how to best communicate. And the students have sort of the reception side of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if this is in the research, uh, Susan. So do you find a difference between introverts and extroverts in terms of, I'm thinking more about from a student perspective, how they internalize information?
1: I've never looked at an introvert versus an extrovert. I wouldn't imagine so. I think, okay, if if you talk a lot, you will gesture a lot. If you don't talk, (laughs) you're not gonna gesture. And I I guess I I wanna take a little bit of issue with um, uh, putting teachers up as the producers and students up as the receivers, because what teachers do when they watch and listen to their students, Um, is get information from their gestures. They may not intend to, but they get information from the students' gestures and they can at times get information that really isn't there in the speech. So they're in a way they're diagnosing the child's thinking from looking at the gesture, okay? And and conversely, you know, the students are not just receiving, you know, they are producing gestures. So I think it's a two-way street, even in a classroom.
0: Um, yeah. yeah, it's definitely two-way street. You know, I, I went to school at University of Chicago for my business school. Uh-huh. And um, in the business school especially, it is, it is always a two-way street. Um, yeah. You know, the professor is sort of standing back and looking at all the kids and saying, do these you know kids really get it? And they're asking questions, you know, uh, and so you are sort of put on the spot. Right. Uh, to respond to something. Right. And then that's also like kind of an interesting thing, right? So, so suppose I sit down and write a piece, you know, a blog or something. Clearly I'm not gesturing because I'm you know sort of putting that in the context. Right. But in a classroom situation, suppose the professor put me on the spot, it'll be quite interesting to see how that student responds to it, right? I mean. Again, there are personality issues here, I would imagine. and I, I don't know if you looked into this so so are there cultural issues that you see? you know are people I, I grew up in India, for example, you know, in a developing country um, where you don't really talk that much, actually, you know you don't talk to your elders, you know mm-hmm. um, and so do you see some cultural differences?
1: Well, do so there Uh, Cultural differences have been reported and people believe there are cultural differences. Maybe there are. I mean, everybody believes that Italians gesture quite a lot. gesture at all. Um, Typically, though, if you look at that very hard, what you see is that what Italian has is a lot of emblems. So things like, you know, okay, uh, thumbs up and okay. And they also gesture very big, they use their bodies. Whereas, you know, northern Europeans tend to gesture small. So originally, when the, the work that had been done went out and looked at Northern Europeans versus Southern Europeans and didn't find differences in rate. Now some new work is coming out that suggests there may be differences in rate, but it's, it's, it reflects sort of how they're thinking about the context and the situation. So there are cultural differences. Um, yeah. I don't know if it's in rate. There are definitely cultural differences that go along with the language you're speaking. Yeah. So the syntax of your language, the structure of your language will affect your gesture. I can give you yeah. an example. Should I give you an example?
0: Yeah, please. Yeah.
1: All right. So um, if you think about how you talk about manner and path, how you move across space, what's the manner in which you move across space? In English, that is, um, you can ex- you can say, I, I ran down the hill. Okay. Um, and it's all part of the one clause. And the gesture you would do would be something like this, mm. you would do do a running gesture, and you do it as you're moving down the hill. Okay, in Turkish, you don't put manner and path together in the same clause, what you do is you put manner in one clause, a uh, path in one clause and manner in another. So you might say, I run, I, I, I go, I go downhill. I go downhill by running
0: Uh, so
1: say it that way in separated clauses and you gesture it in that way so in that sense there are these linguistic differences that engender different gestures
0: yeah that's so interesting so 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 i mean you talk about this in the book and you get into it so there there is sort of a gesture is the language in some way. There's a structure to it, there's a context to it. So just like the Turkish saying, you know, how, how they put things together is right. different from northern Europeans. And I spent some time in Milan and I, I can see the Italians gesturing <laughs> all the time. Right. But I wondered, you know, if you take a country like I don't know, I don't know much about South Korea, but if you take a country like Japan, <clears throat> yeah, do you do you see any differences there? I'm mean, I'm just speculating here. I I don't know. Well,
1: no, we no. I haven't done studies in Japan. I have done studies in China. We've looked at um, hearing moms gesturing to their or interacting with their hearing children. Um, and hearing moms interacting with their deaf children in America and in China. and the the big difference actually is that the Chinese moms gesture much more than the American moms
0: hmm.
1: much more than the American moms. And they gesture a lot both to their deaf kids and their hearing kids much more than the Americans do. So, I mean, my intuition would have been that, you know that Chinese <laughs> So I don't think we have very good intuitions. You know, we, we have to do the work yeah. and figure
0: it out. <laughs> I can confirm that. You know, um, in India, they gesture a lot, actually. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. um, I don't think they talk without gesturing uh, at all. Um, right. And so, so, so it's not sort of a universal concept in many yes. ways at the end of the day. Right. Um, you think in Chapter 2 of the first part, our hands reflect our minds. So, so, what do you
1: mean by that? I mean there are thoughts that we have that come out in our gestures, and sometimes those thoughts match the speech, and sometimes they don't. You know, so we've just dis- we've studied this for the most part in children learning different concepts, yeah. uh, and we found uh, instances where the child's hands and mouth match. So if you listen to him, you don't really need to watch him, but there are other contexts where you really need to both listen and watch, or you're going to miss something.
0: So I don't know if it's related to, I mean, we talk about home sign, home signs and all of that at a later time, but so this is kind sort of, is it related to the mismatch? Like if a child says something, but the the gesture is sort of not related to that?
1: It's not that it's not related, it just conveys more information. So I can give you an example from yep. uh, a number contra- conservation task. If you take two two rows of checkers, and the rows have an equal number of checkers, yep.
0: um,
1: and you ask the child, are the same number of checkers? And he says yes. And then you spread one of the rows out. Okay. And you ask the child again, and, and some children, non-conservers, say no. At a certain age, everybody says no. Even you said no at one point. <laughs> yeah. So no. But the the issue is how do they just dis- how do they explain that no answer? So some children will say, well, they're different because you move them and gesture moving, you know, a spreading out movement. But other children will say mm, they're different because you move them and do a gesture which sort of pairs up the gesture the checkers in one row with the checkers in another row by doing sort of a one to one correspondence gesture. Mm. That didn't come out of his mouth at all. I don't even think he really knows about one-to-one correspondence, but his hands know. And so he's expressing this, and his teacher will know it's on his mind if she looks at him. Mm. And it turns out that those children who express these additional ideas in gesture are more ready to take advantage of instruction Mm. than children who don't express this extra information. Hmm. So these mismatchers are more likely to learn if you give them a lesson in in uh, number conservation.
0: Oh wow so so fascinating. So this goes back to sort of the cognitive load question that we started with. And so without knowing anything about it, my hypothesis was that you know if you are transmitting information in two different channels, um, that's probably more costly. But but we don't we, we don't know how to measure the cost. In fact, gestures might be much less costly than auditory information channels. And so those who gesture could be optimizing from a cognitive cost perspective better potentially, right?
1: Well, I think we do have some evidence that they are, right? So we have asked people to uh, do a math problem and explain it. Okay, and either they explain it while gesturing or they explain it without gesturing, and then they're also supposed to remember a list of of letters. Okay, yeah. um, and then we check later to see how many letters they remembered. They were doing this at the same time as they're explaining, and in the end, they remember more letters if they gesture than if yeah. they don't. So that's how we measure cognitive load. Because if it's really a heavy load, they should remember few levels, letters. But if it's a light load, they should remember more letters, and they remember more letters when they're gesturing than when they're not gesturing.
0: Mm-hmm. So could we make a speculation that if the if the cognitive load of language, auditory channel is higher than gestures, then um, uh, I don't know how to think about it. Do you, does that tell us something about how humans evolved?
1: i don't I don't think we can talk about the cognitive load of gesture versus yeah. language. That doesn't feel like a sensible question to me. Um, because gesture is integrated with with speech. Okay, so sign language is a different story. Sign yeah. language is a language, and it's its own story, um, right? And so you might ask whether sign language, takes a is is harder is it has more cognitive load than spoken language, but that wouldn't be an easy question to ask either. Um, and I think when you think about gesture and speech together, they're really an integrated system. And to ask about whether one has more uh, cognitive load than the other, I think it's together that they yeah. have their synergy,
0: yes, yeah, so I remember um, this might be the, in a different chapter, but so so we could measure how humans behave, supposed to instruct them, not to the gesture, right? So you take an ordinary human being and you say you communicate with just language, don't gesture, and then you have an, an alternative experiment where you gesture and, and talk. And and we have found some data between these two experiments, right, that we could potentially get some insights on. Well,
1: there are things that differ. so. Yes. Um, you know, you will remember things better if you gesture. You remember what you're talking about better if you yeah. would gesture than if you don't gesture. Um you're more likely to learn if it's a, a learning task, if you gesture than if you don't gesture. So so there are many uh, advantages to doing gesture. Um
0: there's also a personality question here, right? So I, I'm going on you know uh, areas outside your research but if you had siblings uh i'm thinking uh at close siblings um one two three four year different siblings as opposed to a single child do they do they differ in any way from a language gesturing perspective
1: well i I mean they're Maybe differences. Certainly, a single child will talk more to adults and therefore yeah. have more sophisticated language, whereas the ones who have siblings will talk to each other. And so they may, you know, I, I think gesture is very dependent on the language that it accompanies. So yeah. if they talk a lot, they may gesture a lot. If they don't talk, they won't gesture very much. So I think I have never discovered. Differences. I mean, their families tend to gesture or not gesture. Yeah, know. It tends to sort of spread from mom and dad to the kids. Um, but I don't think a, a, a firstborn is different with respect to gesturing from subsequent kids. Any more different than he is in language or she is in language.
0: Yeah, so it, it sort of runs in families in some ways. We talk about Italians a little bit. I know a recent uh, very famous politician, and I have watched him quite a bit. And when his hands move side to side, both of his hands move side to side, I can predict with high probability that he's lying. It is lying. Um, and this is a politician that is actually quite easy to predict he's lying. Uh, and, and it seems like all his kids do the same thing. So. So Only one line. <laughs> That's funny. yeah. So the so is sort of a, a an operating system in some ways of a family, isn't
1: it? Well, we have never really looked at gesturing within a family. This is just sort of um, an observation that people, parents who gesture a lot, tend to have kids who gesture a lot. But we haven't looked at um commonalities across family members or how they they talk to one another i think that would be an interesting thing to do Uh, but i looked more at the cognitive effects of gesture and those are more the social in a way sort of what what binds them as a family um and whether gesture is one of those binding tools i think probably is sort of
0: the binding tools uh it could also be there's a set of it's a bit like an operating system, in my view. In my, in I don't know much about it, but so as you grew up, you know your par, you you sort of grew up watching your parents do this, and then you pick up on that in some ways, right? So, um, it, yeah, go ahead.
1: Now let me say, yeah. you have to watch your parents, right? Because we have <laughs> studied, no, no. I mean, it. I mean, we have studied blind people who are congenitally. Oh blind,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. Let's talk gen- about that. Though. Yeah, they will yeah. gesture. So, seeing people gesture is not necessary for you to gesture on your own. Um, you know, maybe if your parents gesture a lot, you're going to be prone to gesture a lot. But just you don't need any visual input at all in order to start gesturing when you talk. Which suggests that it's something very, very intrinsic to the, the to language to speaking.
0: Yeah, it's very intrinsic. So it's very counterintuitive, right? So. I would have thought gesturing as a visual thing. Um, I can see this person moving; his he or her hands around, and you know, as he or she is talking. But you're saying it is it is more fundamental than that. So, so if if you're on a study of blind kids in a family, their gesturing patterns are similar to their parents' patterns.
1: Well, their gesture patterns are similar to other kids. I've not other looked kids. At blind parents. I mean, often, you know, I don't know, it's hard to study blind kids. There aren't that many. Yeah. Um, so there we have looked at blind kids and compared them to sighted kids and compared them to blindfolded kids and their gestures are not that different in some contexts. I'm sure I, I, they will be different if they have a different conception of what they're describing. So when they're describing space, particularly navigated space, where they have very, they don't have, they can't see down the long hall, they're going to take that space in smaller aliquots, Their gestures will look different. But if you give them both a small space, that uh, sighted and blind, and you allow them to feel the space and look at the space, they can do that in the same way because they can uh, sort of encounter it all at once. So it depends on what they're thinking, it depends on they that's why I say gesture reflects your mind because how you conceive of the space or how you conceive of the object, whether you got it through your hands or your eyes or your ears, that's gonna influence how you gesture.
0: Yeah, so it's a very really fundamental concept it's almost going into so we talked about you know sort of non-human primates. We don't know a lot about them. We don't exactly know how they communicate. Um, maybe you know species close to us, maybe doing some gesturing, um, but species away from us may not be. So so language, if I understand this correctly, Susan, and correct me if I'm wrong. Gesturing is part of language development. It is not a separate concept. It is integral to language. That is the way I understand it now.
1: I think that's right. I think it is integral to language. And one of the reasons I firmly believe that is because, first of all, we haven't found a culture yet where people don't gesture. And the mind, even if you never see somebody gesture, you still move your hands when you talk. And that is very compelling evidence that, you know, if you're going to talk, you're going to be gesturing. In addition, you signers gesture. Yeah. I mean, people who are American Sign Language users are using their hands already, but they do more than just use the signs. They will produce gestures that look similar to a hearing person's gestures.
0: Right. So so in part two here, you say it's just uh, uh, speaking with our hands. And you say here in Chapter four, as long as there are humans, there'll be language. Um, I'm not sure about that. Um, uh, <laughs> we are actually uh, advancing in the United States, almost losing language. Um, uh, I contend. Uh,
1: <laughs> not really.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but but I get your point here. So there will be language, but language as you define it is not just auditory. Right. It, it is it is sort of body body language as you as know. You. No,
1: I, I know I, I do not call body language language. I think body language is quite different from the structure of language. Um, the reason I say that uh, there will always be language as long as there are humans, because we can find young children who have not had who are deaf and don't have exposure to a sign language. So they can't acquire spoken language because they're because they're hearing losses. Um, and they don't have a sign language to model. They will gesture. And their gestures look really different from your gestures and my gestures and anybody who's talking. They will basically construct. Um, the beginnings of a language. It's a simple language because they're kids, but these are what I call home signs, what what the field calls home signs. Um, and those home signs look a lot like language. Um, and that comes about even if the child doesn't have a model for language. So it feels very uh, intrinsic to humans.
0: Yeah, so they're basically inventing a language. Right. In some ways, right? Right. They are starting with a blank sheet of paper. <laughs> and saying you know not blank. I mean, <laughs> not not quite blind blank and they're
1: thinking and you yeah.
0: know yeah and so were there any studies that you know you have blind parents and blind kids um in a situation do we have any any data on something like that
1: what do you mean blind
0: so so the parents are blind and the kids are blind
1: oh uh, no i even,
0: looked at that. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, a-
1: that's very rare because blindness isn't genetic yeah. and usually blindness is quite different. It's not unusual to find deaf kids born to deaf parents, but still most deaf kids are born to hearing parents.
0: Yeah, that's very
1: rare, All blind yeah. kids are born to sighted to parents, but I don't actually know that.
0: Yeah. So in, in uh, part two here, watching language grow naturally and in the lab. So Language growing in the lab. So what's the the experiment in the lab?
1: Well, let me talk about the natural first because that comes first. So these home signers that I've been looking at are deaf children of hearing parents. Um, They aren't exposed to deaf people. And so they are basically producing their language, but they don't get anything back. What they get back are the spontaneous gestures that their parents produce. So they are producers of a system, they're not receivers. But 40 years ago, Um, In Nicaragua, these home signers were uh, deaf children were brought together into a single classroom. And the goal was to teach them Spanish, not to teach them sign language. There was no sign language. But what happened is they didn't learn Spanish. However, they shared their home sign systems. And at that point, the home centers not only produced their gestures, but also got gestures back and a language started to evolve. So that's Nicaraguan Sign Language in the very, very beginnings. And since that time, over the 40 years, new deaf kids have come into the situation and have learned that Nicaraguan Sign Language and have changed it in the learning. So that is the natural emergence of language. Um, and all sign languages emerge in that way, uh, mm-hmm. but Nicaraguan sign language just happened to have a bunch of researchers there to to capture the change.
0: Mm. Yeah, so sign language is emerging um, and developing. So uh, we see in uh, you know the sort of the traditional languages, uh, colloquial um, uh, sort of changes in them. Um, do we see similar things in um, in sign language?
1: so you mean language change that's what you're talking
0: about yeah so what's the right term for this you know slangs and things like that in language yeah, I think right? that's
1: so, language yeah. change yeah i think okay so languages do change over time they don't get that they might add complexity here and lose it here and you know they're basically sort of just going back and forth and some of the changes come about because adolescence uh, introduce new terms, and some of those terms stick, and some don't. Those changes happen in sign languages too. Sign languages do not all resemble one another; they're different in in all culture, well, in many cultures. Um, you know, Chinese sign language is different from Japanese sign language, which is different from British sign language. So they're they're varied, just like spoken languages are.
0: And there's the innovation going on there. So, uh, in, in part three here. Um... There's a chapter here, Using Hands to Diagnose and Treat. I'm very interested in this, <laughs> um, Susan. So, so you talk about autism, you talk about other uh, mental diseases, and uh, if I understand this correctly, you're saying this is another way we could diagnose some of these diseases, right? Um, the ability to, um, uh, to both use and Uh, consume science.
1: Well, this is gestures. I mean, what we found, uh, uh, we were looking at brain injured children, um, a group of them who were all at the low level with respect to word production. So they were not within the typical range for word production. But half of them actually gestured just like typically developing children and half didn't. And that was at 18 months. And if you look then at 30 months, the same children, you see that the children who gestured a lot in the first time continued to gesture a lot. The kids who gestured very little continued to gesture very little. But the difference came with the word learning. So the children who did not gesture stayed at the bottom of the pack and did never uh, really developed words at the typical rate, whereas the children who gestured did. So by 30 months, they were in the normal range for both gesture and speech. So if you were looking at gesture, you would be able to diagnose and figure out which kids needed the intervention to move into the typical range and which kids did not. So,
0: sorry, go ahead, sorry. No, no,
1: it's just, I think it's a really interesting tool that clinicians, and frankly, I think good clinicians use that tool all the time. They just don't always realize what they're using when they say this kid is, you know, having problems.
0: Yes, so interesting. So, you know, I mean, maybe the first 12 to 18 months, uh, kids don't have language, uh, but they are gesturing. And so this is sort of an early diagnostic tool that we could. Yes. Right? Right. I
1: and mean, this is before the children are really, you know, they're doing not doing well in language, but it's well before they're going to to really be. You wouldn't say, you know, this kid needs and needs instruction. And this one doesn't. You would never know that unless you looked at their gestures.
0: But more fundamentally, um, I mean, we, we I sort of know how adults gesture but mm-hmm. I don't know. My my daughter's an OBGY and so I have to ask her, but I don't know how kids um gesture. I mean, there a difference?
1: Well, I think that at the very early stages there is a difference. So that when children use their gestures, they often use them as as words. You know, certainly when they're very little and they can't talk, they point a lot. But you know, a child might point at a cup and say mommy. Mm. You know, and that's really a little sentence, because a child is not calling his mother a cop. He's <laughs> it's mommy's cup. Um, but the, the gesture is, is, is functioning as a word. And we don't we can do that, but we don't do that as much. We use our gestures to sort of, at a different level. It's more at a discourse level. And we capture bigger ideas. And I think somewhere between you know the beginning of speech and maybe five or six, Children's gestures change, so they start using their gestures at a discourse level as well, and they look like
0: adults. <laughs> like adults, and it's all downhill from there. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: so, <laughs> yeah, so so that that sort of proves the idea that gestures, uh, the gesture construct, is a language. Uh, it develops, uh, you try some things, and you learn from it, and then you develop it into more sophisticated ways uh, to, to gesture. Um, and so it is truly a language, isn't it? I mean, it, it there's really no difference.
1: Well, it depends what you mean by language. I think that sign language is no different from spoken language. Yeah. I mean, in a different modality but it has the same discrete categories it's i mean there are differences of course but it's hierarchically organized you have discourse and your sentences and words and you know smaller units Uh, but gesture is quite different from a language it is not hierarchically structured it's probably flat Um, it doesn't have standards of form you know, you can do a gesture that looks a little weird, but people don't say, oh, you gestured that wrong, unless you're doing an emblem, unless you're doing something like thumbs up, or, you know, if I do this for okay, that isn't good. If I put my think- uh, pinky and thumb together, that yeah. doesn't mean okay. It doesn't mean anything. You know, that's yeah. weird. So those have a standard of form, but the gestures that we spontaneously produce, don't have a standard form and if I want to talk about a cat going up the pipe, I can do it with my uh, finger pointing up or I can t- do it with a C hand going up or I can do it with my whole hand going up. <laughs> There's no, I mean, it may be meaningful yeah. which hand shape I choose, but there is no, you're not going to say to me oh, wrong hand shape. That was a bad gesture.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the politicians, and I think you talk about this somewhere in, the, in your book, you know, the kings, queens and princesses mm-hmm. uh, have realized this. So when you go out to the public, there's certain certain gestures uh, you have to do or you, you shouldn't do. So this is trained gestures uh as as to be expected by the public right (laughs) (laughs) this is a a different thing yeah right
1: right. but i i do refer to princess diana when she's being trained to enter into the court and what they told her they basically tied up her hands because they didn't want her spontaneously expressing herself um they didn't want her you know emoting with her hands nor did they want her (laughs) saying things that they didn't want her to say so so they tied up her hands
0: yeah yeah so that's that's training. Um, so so I just want to go back and touch on the diagnosis part uh, a little bit more. So clearly, um, before babies pick up language, there is information there that physicians could use to diagnose and, as you say, intervene potentially in a beneficial way. Um, And it's not just in the first 12 months, isn't it? I mean, it it, it could be sort of the first five years of a baby's progression that we could actually utilize as alternative diagnostic modality to to help kids. Well, I think
1: gesture does often precede and predict the next stage in language acquisition. And if you're not seeing your, you know, if you could look for it, and if you're not seeing it, maybe you would want to get some help. From, uh, you know, somebody who can intervene and instruct the child. But I think gesture does precede and predict the next stage in language learning. And um, if kids are going off that trajectory, I think we want to know that.
0: Yeah, I mean, so the downside, obviously, is, you know, do we have an intervention? Um, I, I suppose. I think,
1: I think yeah. they do. Yeah, I think they, they do. I have a, a former student, Jenna Iverson, who's in, in Boston now, who has studied the gestures of autistic kids and of Down syndrome kids and Williams syndrome kids, and just to see how they are different, uh, if they're different, how parents gesture to them, do the parents gestures help? I mean it's It's a world out there. it's a, it's definitely used to um, for conversation and communication in these children,
0: yeah, and these uh, issues are increasing. So it's you know, I didn't know about Williamson's um, uh, syndrome. I just looked at looked it up on Google uh, after I you know uh, read your book. and um, I mean, I knew about Down syndrome. So all yeah. this um, all these issues are sort of increasing. So there is a there's sort of an interesting thing to think about here from a diagnostic perspective. In the first six to eighteen months, can we deploy some techniques that could actually have an earlier diagnosis, earlier intervention, whatever that is? Um, it's not trivial, right? I mean, it's just a it's a high percentage of the population anymore.
1: Well, I I think. It- Good speech therapists and doctors have been using gesture for years. Yeah. So I think when they have an intuition that this child needs help, they're basing that intuition on gesture. So what we have to do is is uh, try to formalize it a bit so that people who are maybe not so intuitive can also use it.
0: Right. But- right. Yeah. And so, so in conclusion, um, Susan. So. Uh, this is such a fascinating topic. I I don't know much about it, but it is. It seems like uh, it's opening up a channel of communication, and right. humans have always had it. Yep. Uh, we don't know much about non-human primates, but they may have some some number of them, maybe using it as well. And um, it it effectively says it's an integrated um, language process. So it's not, it cannot be really separated. We talked about the cognitive load issue. It's not like, you know, when you move your hands, you know, your brain is thinking, oh, you know, I I have to get more calories (laughs) to do this. Um, In fact, it could be the other way around, actually. So if you're sort of sitting still and just talking, the brain is sort of compensating for it in some ways, and that may take more energy than otherwise. And so. So what's our sort of the latest understanding? Uh, so after having done a lot of research in this area, so So what would you what would you say? Um, how how do we use this knowledge in, in you know for societal benefit? Let me put it that way.
1: Well, I I mean the last part of the book goes through three areas in which I think we can use the knowledge about gesture. One is parenting. Um, the other is as you talked about diagnosis in a clinical setting, and the third is in an educational setting. Uh, but I, I think actually we should be more attentive to gesture in all settings. Um, I give some examples in a courtroom where the gestures are very important because you can mislead with gesture inadvertently or on purpose. You, know, I mean, I don't know whether what our lawyers think hard about their gestures, but um, we have an example where we we did a study where we brought a, a musician into a classroom, so we knew exactly what the musician did. We videotaped him, and then we interviewed children about that musician. Um, and if you're interviewing somebody, you you really shouldn't ask targeted questions, misleading questions. You should ask <laughs> open questions. So rather than say, "What color was the hat he was was he wearing?" What color was the hat he was wearing? Right. You would say what else was he wearing? And not mention a hat at all. Okay, so what we did was we asked targeted questions, some of them, you know, what color was the hat he was wearing, but we also asked open-ended questions, what else was he wearing, along with a hat gesture. Hmm. And when you ask that question with a hat gesture, you get just as many hats as you get when you say what color was the hat he was wearing. So that adding gesture to even the best question in the world, misleads. Yeah, I mean that guy wasn't wearing a hat. There was no hat there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. So, I mean, you you talk about the legal things here. That, that's really really interesting for me. So, I mean, we are going through an election cycle here. We have the Supreme Court uh, dabbling on a lot of interesting questions. Um. When the briefs come out, I'm not a lawyer, I don't know much about how, how this thing works, but um, you see, you know, it's all text, right? It's it's sort of an analytical Einstein-Maxwell equation paper. <laughs> uh, and there's no additional context there. Um, and so that's that's a problem for the legal profession, isn't it?
1: Well, I think there is information that is being... Yeah produced, entered into the conversation, and not written down. So if, you know, the lawyer says, what else was he wearing, and does a hat gesture, he's going to sort of bias his witness to, to start talking about hats, even though he never mentioned hats, and hats won't be on the transcript. Then, in, and it works the other way. If if the, the lawyer says to a child, um, what else was he wearing, and the child says nothing, but does uh, a sort of a, a, an eyeglasses gesture, <laughs> hands up to his eyes, doesn't say anything, so it won't be on the transcript. The lawyer's next statement: "Oh, was he wearing glasses?" It sounds like the lawyer has introduced that topic when, in fact, it was the child. So I think at moments when new bits of information are introduced into a trial or a, uh, a you know a testimony, that may be the place to go and check the the video and make sure that it was introduced by the person the transcript says it was introduced by.
0: Yes. Yeah, so, so what you're arguing, if I understand correctly, Susan, is that um, when the justices go back and make a decision, they should not be just reading text, they should be watching videos.
1: Well, I have um, thought a lot about this because you can't watch the videos for all of the, you know, of the, uh, the whole testimony. That's too much. So I, when I think that the places. Oh, these
0: guys are getting paid a lot of money. They have a lot of time. No, I'm just kidding. Well, that may be.
1: Okay. <laughs> but if they want to be more targeted, what they can do is look at the moments when new information is being introduced on the transcript and then go check the video there. Yeah. You know, because I'm trying to think about you cannot say to somebody, oh, look at the entire video of the of the, 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 the eyewitness testimony. It's just it's it's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So I've thought a, a lot about where you could be, how you could be more targeted and it could be more useful. So that would be my suggestion.
0: So you, your would be, so you look at the transcript and you say, you know, uh, at 1330. There is a piece of information here that I don't quite understand. So I can go look from 1330 to 1430.
1: I can see. Right. So at that moment, the child sort of tells you that the person who attacked him was wearing a hat. Yeah. Okay. Let's go back and see whether the lawyer introduced that idea or whether it came from the child, you know, something like that.
0: Right. Right. On the other hand, though, you know, I mean, watching a video is almost, as time-consuming or as time-consuming as reading a transcript. I mean, these legal transcripts are quite long. Um, yeah. And so I don't know if it is, you know, um, that much more time-consuming to actually watch the video.
1: That I don't know. I will leave <laughs> to the jurors and the lawyers.
0: <laughs> Excellent yeah, so do you have any closing thoughts that you want to you want to leave?
1: No, I think that I, I think I want people to understand that there is a distinction between using your hands to gesture when it accompanies language, either a spoken language or a sign language. Yeah. Right? and y- using your hands to sort of take over the full role of language, and that's home sign and sign language. Um, So your hands can be language or can go along with language. And when it goes along with language, it tells us a lot about when we're thinking. When it is language, it does what language does and it does it well. So.
0: Yeah, so I just thought about something that I want to ask you. So just like a deaf person, there could be people out there who don't actually internalize um, gestures. Uh, I, I'm just speculating here. Um, they're I mean, just people cued
1: who into, see them but don't understand them.
0: Uh, they they may not be really cued into them. So you know, so for instance, and i was saying you know, I, I just I, I just learn from auditory <laughs> information, and there could be people out there who are they they are in some sense gesture deaf. Um, I'm just speculating, completely speculating. Awesome. I have no data on this. So, right. Um, they, I suspect that people like that. Like so. So if you go out to them and you talk to them and you say, you know, whatever you want to say, they're just taking one channel in. So it all depends on what you actually said. Nothing mm-hmm. else. Uh, I suspect that people like that. Up there. <laughs> but
1: I don't know. I bet you're watching my gestures. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to I I'll do a little study on you sometime. We'll we'll check it out.
0: <laughs> no, I I'm, I'm just I'm just saying I'm like that. I'm There's a gesture.
1: You just did one.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, thanks so much for coming back.
1: Sure, it was a pleasure. Thanks Thank for having me.